So as we saw last time, as we opened up chapter 10, and chapter 10 really began this new section uh, of the epistle of 2 Corinthians because Paul is once again defending his ministry and calling as an apostle. So Paul, uh, as he is doing that, he's being very upfront and straightforward with those who are trying to discredit him by saying, well, Paul, he writes a bold letter, but in person he's lowly or he's base. And it was a nice way of them getting in their digs. They were saying that he's not impressive physically. Um, he, his speech is contemptible. So he really doesn't have any authority as an apostle. And there were those who were coming in and they were exalting themselves. They were calling themselves you know, super apostles and prophets, and they were undermining Paul's ministry, and they were causing division and problems within the church, and the church was receiving these guys, and they were also bringing in false teaching, and so Paul is addressing all of these things. And you recall that in verse 7 of the chapter that he would say that, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? And what was happening is they were putting Paul down because he would wear those you know, tent-making clothes that were sweaty, and, and they, he wasn't very uh, impressive physically. And we know that the ultimate example of what God shows us in his word is clear back in 1 Samuel you recall when Samuel the prophet came to Jesse's house there at Bethlehem to anoint the new king of Israel. And it was Jesse's eldest son, Eliab, that stood before Samuel. And Samuel, looking at him, seeing that he was tall and handsome, said, Surely this is the Lord's anointed that is before me. And you know that the text tells us that it was the Lord that rebuked Samuel and said, don't look at his outward appearance for I don't see as a man sees. I see the heart, Samuel. And, and so uh, it was the youngest of Jesse's sons, of course, that was to be anointed. And that was David who had a heart after God. So here is the apostle saying, really, do, do you judge me according to my outward appearance? And, and Paul would say, we are of Christ and I will come to you with all the authority that I show in my letters. And, and I, I will, you know, uh, do that, and I don't do what you guys are doing, and that is I don't compare myself to others. And so Paul's just sharing about his authority and his heart concerning ministry, and he says, you compare me to others and reject me because I'm not impressive to you physically or my speech verbally. And so we talked about that quite carefully last week, and Paul once again, as we continue, even though he's being quite bold here, he's going to continue to express his concern and affection that he had for this congregation there in the city of Corinth. So Paul, you recall in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, he would say to them, you have 10,000 instructors, but you, you don't have many fathers. So Paul had a real genuine godly love for them, and he says there are those who come who will lay all kinds of things on you that are not of God, and we're going to talk about some of those things as we continue on, how they brought corruption and false doctrine to the people, and they were ones that were ruling over the people. We're going to see that Paul's actually going to say that these people, these false apostles and prophets that are exalting themselves, are punching you in the face, and you put up with it. 
They're ruling over you rather than being a helper of your joy. We're not here to have dominion over you. And so I've begotten you uh, in the faith. And so he had the heart of a spiritual father and a true shepherd towards the Corinthians. And he's getting them to realize that if you're going to judge and analyze and, and uh, you know, criticize others, including me, you want to compare others to yourself, then don't use your own standards, but use God's standard. And that's where we left off last time, talking about how it is foolish to compare ourselves to others, verse 12. Paul would say that it is unwise, and indeed it is, isn't it? Because if we are ones that we like to compare ourselves to others, and I think that, that all of us have done that in one way or another, as we go through life, we begin to compare our lives with other people or compare ourselves spiritually with others or our ministries with other ministries. And it's not wise because either you will get all puffed up because you see that you're doing better or you're more spiritual than the person you're comparing yourself with or usually what will happen is you'll get discouraged because you don't have their looks, or you don't have their intelligence, you don't have their talents. You don't have their fame or prestige, and I don't have a ministry like they do. And we need to watch out and be careful. And so that's what Paul is discussing, and that's where we left off with Paul talking about that. So let's pick it up at verse 13, again, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, as we read that we, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves, as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. In verse 15, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in another man's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you, and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. So what is Paul saying here? He, he talks about the limits of sphere which, which Paul or God appointed us, the idea of the limit of sphere which be, would be familiar to the Corinthians because the Corinthians, the Greek, they, they were very much into the ancient Olympic Games that took place in Athens, not far from the city of Corinth. And even the city of Corinth itself had these games that were called the Isthmus Games. They were almost as, as uh, prestige as the Olympic Games. And, and they were large uh, games that would happen and uh, there in the city of Corinth. And so they understood this term that Paul is using. They don't, don't go beyond the, the measure of the limited sphere that has been given to us. And so it has the idea, uh, that language, of the lanes allotted to runners in a race. And we know how that is. We watch a track, and we'll watch the Olympics this summer, and the runners have to stay in their lane. And it was like Paul is saying to them, I am running in my own lane and not in somebody else's lane. I am running my own race. And Paul oftentimes would liken his life in the Lord as a race. And of course, that's the whole theme of Vacation Bible School, that tomorrow when I teach the kids, I'm going to be teaching them about, you know, that our life, that our walk with the Lord is actually like running a race. And the Lord has a race for you to run. And he wants to help you, and he wants to enable you, and he has a wonderful life for you, and he wants to use you. And so helping the kids understand that there's a race that they're going to be running in life. 
a, a, a spiritual race and, and for them to be encouraged in that and blessed in that. And that's what my prayer is for the children. And it's my prayer for us that we would understand that. He told, you recall, the Corinthians in his first letter to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that you guys run your race as to win the prize. And then, of course, we saw even in this epistle that Paul went on to explain that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, saying that we will all stand, we as believers, before the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ. And again, the Corinthians would know exactly what Paul was talking about, because in those Olympic games and in those Isthmus games, as you won a prize, you would stand at the Bema reward seat, and you would receive that reward and uh, the prize for you know, winning your race or the event that you were participating in. And we as believers are going to stand at the Bema reward seat of Christ, not to be judged for our sins. Jesus Christ took that judgment upon himself when he died on Calvary's cross. But we're going to be given rewards and crowns. The New Testament talks a whole lot about that as we stand before the Lord, what we did for him, and our love for him and our service for the Lord. So we talked quite extensively about that. So we're to run the race to win the prize. We know that Paul, when he was addressing the Ephesian elders for the last time, there in Acts chapter 20, he talked about running his race. He said to them that I don't count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord. And what my prayer for all of us here at Calvary Chapel is that we would run our race with joy that we would understand that we are to keep eternity's perspective in mind as we live this life and as we continue to serve the Lord and live for the Lord. I want to run my race with joy, Lord, just serving you in the ministry which you have given to me. And then Paul, at the end of his life, of course, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, he would say that I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. So every single one of us, we know, is running a race, and it's your race. God has a race for you, and it's a different race than anybody else that is in this room. So here's the thing that Paul is telling us. Don't run out of your lane. Don't try to run somebody else's race. Don't compare yourself to somebody else, which we can do, and we say, I want to be like them. I want their ministry. I want to talk like them. I want to dress like them. I want to be like them. No, be yourself. Be who God has made you to be. So don't run somebody else's race. And he says, we don't boast beyond measure the limits and what God has given to us in ministry and in my authority. And I realize and I know that the boundaries that the Lord has given to me, but Paul goes on to say that includes you Corinthians. You're in that boundary. You're in the lane in which we are running. And we're not overextending ourselves to bring the gospel to you. God did call us to minister to you. And it is just gives you a sense of peace and it will give you real joy when you realize what it is that the Lord desires for you, the race that you have, what we understand and know what God has called us to do, the race that we are to run. Yes, we are to run that race in a way to win the prize, but don't go beyond the limits given to you. Don't run outside of your lane. When we stand before the Lord, he's not going to ask you, why didn't you have a ministry like Moses? Of course, nobody could have a ministry like Moses. Or why weren't you more like Paul the Apostle? Why didn't you have a ministry? He's not going to ask me, why didn't you have a ministry like Pastor Chuck Smith? 
You see, the account that we're going to give is, did you run your race? Did I run my race? Did you, you know, in the lane that was given to you, in the opportunities that God has given you to serve, and where he's placed you, and the gifts that he has given to you, were you just simply you, in other words? Just be who you are. So don't try to be more and don't be less, but just be who you are and how God has made you and the opportunities given to you and what he's called you to do, no matter how humble or grand that it might seem to be to you or to anyone else. Stay within your boundaries. We don't boast in another, men's, uh, another man's labor to try to make us look good. And after we preach to you, verse 16, we would move on to other regions beyond you in Corinth. In verse 17, but he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. And realize that it's the Lord that calls us the ministry. It is the Lord that has saved us. He's forgiven us. And he desires for us to be used in the body of Christ to exhort and to build up others, to be a blessing and a light to a lost world. And so it's the Lord that does that work. And he's the one that commends us the ministry. We don't commend ourselves. We can't save ourselves, and, and we're not to run a race to where we are exalting ourselves or commending ourselves, that is, being approved to ministry. It's the Lord that does it by the work of the Holy Spirit, and we're to give glory to Him. We're not to glory in ourselves. We're not to glory in our intelligence or our might or our togetherness or our talents. We glory in the Lord. And the book of Isaiah tells us that He will not share His glory with any man or any woman. So we don't glory in ourselves. We don't glory in anyone else. We glory in the Lord, and that's where you should glory too. If you're going to boast, or boast is in what God has done. The way to know that you are being effective in your ministry and your service to the Lord is if you are bringing glory to God, not to yourself. So now we move into chapter 11, verse 1. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Will you just bear with me, you Corinthians? I want you to know that I have a father's heart towards you. I am jealous for you. I want to present you a chaste virgin to Christ. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Well, in those days and in the Jewish culture, it was the father's responsibility to make sure that his daughter was pure up until the time that she got married. And if she was not a virgin at the time of her marriage, that was a serious issue. And it could be that she could be stoned, really, according to the law. It would bring humiliation to the father and to the rest of the family. So it was a very serious matter. And, and that's why it was a serious thing when Mary became pregnant bearing Jesus. Of course, that which was conceived, Jesus in her, was of the Holy Spirit. She was a virgin with child. But can you imagine what it must have been like for her? Probably 16 years old, very young. For her to have to go and tell her family. They have to tell Joseph, hey, I'm pregnant, but I haven't known a man physically. Now, again, Paul said that you have 10,000 instructors, you Corinthians, but not many fathers. And as a father to you spiritually, and a father to you in the faith, I want you to be a chaste virgin to Christ. Now, also keep in mind, as Paul is working within the context of the Jewish culture, it was common that 
if you uh, had children and early in their lives, it wasn't uncommon for Jewish children to really be engaged when they were small children. What would happen is parents would get together and they would say, hey, Johnny here seems to like playing with little Susie and why don't we arrange for them to get engaged and when they get old enough, they can get married. Now, that still happens in some parts of the world, in some cultures, very much it happens that way. When I first heard that when I was single and, and I thought, man, what a terrible thing having your parents arrange your, you know, your engagement when, you know, when you're young or whatever. Now, as I'm older and being a parent of two daughters, I think, well, maybe that's not such a bad idea. <laughs> Just kidding, Barbara and Rachel. So, so you, uh, in the Jewish culture, in Jesus' day, you could be really engaged what was the first step to being married as a small child. And the fathers would kind of work together, get together, and work things out, a dowry and all of that, making the arrangements. And, and then when you got to be teenagers, usually, again, about 16, 17 years old, then you would go into the second stage, which was you were espoused. And, and that was more like what we call the engagement period. Now, in the Jewish culture, in the espousal period, you were actually legally considered man and wife, but you did not live together you did not consummate the marriage physically. And if you chose to end that espousal period, then you had to legally get a certificate of divorce, just like you were married. So that espousal period for usually about a year, you were legally married, but there wasn't a coming together. Again, this is evident with Mary when she went to visit Elizabeth. Remember Elizabeth in Luke's Gospel in chapter 2? that Elizabeth was, was pregnant with John the Baptist, and so Mary went to see her and spend some time with her until John the Baptist was born. And it says in verse 56 of that chapter that Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and then returned to her house. She did not return to Joseph's house, but to her house. And that was during that espousal period between Joseph and Mary. So they were legally married, but they didn't live together. And if you wanted to get out of that engagement that your dad put you in, then you would have to get a divorce. Kind of interesting, isn't it? And again, this is where Joseph and Mary were because they were espoused at the time that Mary became pregnant with the Messiah, Jesus. And, and Joseph, as you read in Matthew chapter 1, was wanting to put her away secretly, privately. But it was the angel that would come to Joseph and said, don't be afraid to take to you, Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she's going to bear forth a son and his name's going to be called Jesus. And he shall save his people from their sins. And so after the espousal period came the actual marriage. And that's when they would live together and consummate the marriage. So what Paul is saying here, using that analogy, you and me as believers were espoused to Jesus Christ. And the marriage is about to come. The engagement really has already happened. When you and I came to Jesus Christ, put our faith and trust in Him, we're born again by the Spirit of God. As we've already read in this epistle, that the, the Holy Spirit has been given to us. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And that's like the engagement ring. And the marriage is going to happen when we go home to be with the Lord, when we are raptured and, and out of here. And then, as we read in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, that we will all be at the marriage feast of the Lamb. It's going to be a wonderful time. 
And that's why Paul would say to Titus, we've been talking about Titus, as, Paul, as Titus has been helping Paul and delivering these letters to the Corinthian believers, that when Paul wrote his letter to Titus, that in chapter 2, verse 13, Titus, you be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we're all one day going to be at the marriage feast of the Lamb. So Paul says, my ministry to you is this. As a father to you, I want to make sure that you retain your purity, walk in purity, and you're not seduced by those who would come into the congregation and pull you away from the Lord and cause you to commit spiritual adultery. I want to present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now, you can really sense Paul's desire for them to do well in the things of Christ. And really, parents and dads, that's our ministry to our children. We want them to be raised in the ways and admonition of the Lord. That's a responsibility that has been given to us as parents, raising our children in that way, desiring for them more than anything that they have a devotion for the Lord, that they know the Lord, that they know the ways of the Lord praying for them, ministering to them. Oh, that they would just have purity in their lives, Lord, and a pure heart towards you. As a minister, that's my priority to you here at Calvary Chapel. My desire is that you know the Word of God, that you know Him, and, and that to encourage you in your devotion to the Lord, in your love for Him. And that you walk in the ways of the Lord, that you walk in holiness, and that there is a purity in your life in, as you just follow after the Lord. That's my desire for you. And that's what Paul is expressing to them. Don't let these guys come in and pull you away. He's going to continue to talk about that. He says in verse 30, But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Even as Eve was seduced, I fear for you that you'll become corrupt. Now think with me, how was Eve seduced back in the book of Genesis? It was Eve that would have the serpent come. And the serpent, the enemy, Satan, coming to Eve, he didn't say, hey Eve, why don't you take some of these drugs over here? Or why don't you drink some of this alcohol? Or, or look at him over there. Why don't you commit adultery with him? Uh, that isn't what deceived her, and, and even though that Satan will use those kinds of things to bring corruption and sin into our lives and bondage. But the way that Eve was deceived, and it's kind of interesting when you read it, that he would say to her, did God really say not to eat of that tree? If you eat of that tree, your eyes are going to be open, and you're going to be more like God. In other words, you're going to be more spiritual. Got something for you, Eve. You can become like him. So Paul is warning them that there are those coming in to offer you some kind of greater spirituality, which is a false spirituality. Hey, I'm worried, Paul says, that there are those coming in and corrupting you, de deceiving you in the simplicity that is in Christ. What you teach, Paul, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's too simple. We need to take people into a deeper spirituality. And Paul warns us here, verse 4, For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Watch out. And Paul would pick up 
That same theme, as you know, in the book of Galatians, in chapter 1. He would write to them that even if an angel from heaven preaches another gospel to you than what we have preached, let him be accursed. It doesn't matter how white his robes are, or if he glows, or how long his trumpet might be that you see on the tops of the Mormon temples, the angel Moroni, with this trumpet, trumpeting a false gospel. They say another gospel has been brought to us. And Paul says even if another angel, angel manifests himself and brings another gospel, you are to reject that. If an angel or some spiritual person or whoever comes to you and says, hey, it's deeper, it's heavier, I got a new revelation about who Jesus is. If it's another Jesus, if it's another gospel, another spirit, then you are to reject it. It doesn't matter if it's a manifestation, an angel who brings another gospel. Let that angel be accursed, Paul writes in Galatians chapter 1. I'm concerned, Paul says, that you may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. John the Apostle, in his epistle of 2 John, in verse 10, he writes this, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, what doctrine? He had been talking about the deity of Jesus Christ. And John says in verse 10, If they bring another Jesus, don't receive him into your house, nor greet him. That is, you don't say, God bless you. You're such a spiritual person. It's wonderful what you believe. It doesn't matter really what we believe. For him who greets him shares in his evil deeds. In other words, John is telling us, be careful. Don't receive them. Don't let them deceive you. And they talk to you, saying that we have another revelation given to us, a greater revelation about Jesus. We're the true church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's another Jesus that the Mormon missionary will bring to your door. And I'm not saying that there aren't those times that we can engage in discussion with Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses. Of course we do. We want to give them the true Jesus. Make sure that you're sharing truth when you do that. Don't just ask them into your house and let them make statement after statement of false doctrine and then say, oh, God bless you. You guys have a great church. You do great things. John is saying, just beware of deceivers. The Mormons bring another Jesus. They believe that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer. They believe that Jesus is a created being. And they believe that with Jesus and Lucifer being brothers, that the Father was thinking of a plan to redeem the world, that Lucifer gave his plan, and then Jesus gave his plan, and the Father chose Jesus' plan. And they were having this family conference. And so Lucifer got upset, and he launched this rebellion against Jesus, his brother. So Jesus and Lucifer are brothers, both inferior to the Father, according to Mormon doctrine. We know that it's another Jesus. The Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. It's another Jesus. And many more groups and cults that present to you and me another Jesus. One of the things that I'm watching with concern that we're seeing happening more and more in the church in America is that pastors are letting Islamic clergy and fellow speakers behind the pulpit freely. Saying, hey, you know, we believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus, they will say. I believe in Muhammad and all the prophets. So our mission here is to introduce people to God in a greater way and a greater understanding. 
They will even say that we believe in Jesus more than you do. Now the Muslims do recognize Jesus, but they recognize him in this way, that he was a good man, that he was just a prophet, that he's not as great as Muhammad. They will reject the atoning work of the cross. They reject his burial and resurrection. They reject the deity of Jesus. They reject that he is the only way to heaven. And it is concerning that pastors, as I mentioned, increasingly are doing this across the country, letting Muslim, you know, Islamic clergy behind their pulpits in the name of understanding and love. But in an effort to love, they've left out truth. We need to know that there is no love and deceit. And we are in danger if we applaud that approach that many pastors are. Let's just understand them better. We're in danger uh, of, of being deceived ourselves. The Muslim needs to hear about the true Jesus. The Jehovah Witness and, and, the, Jeho and the Mormon needs to hear about the true Jesus, as everyone does, to present truth to them. So we need to be careful, those who come along not presenting Jesus to you in truth. The main issue at stake is the deity of Jesus, not mutual understanding or feeling good about each other. In any presentation of Jesus where Jesus is not presented as the only way and God manifested in the flesh is blasphemy. And it's not introducing God you know, uh, to the people, uh, but it is deception. Jesus said that his way is narrow. The narrow is the way. And if there is any single issue in the New Testament that is fighting ground, that is non-negotiable, it is the issue of Jesus' deity, that he is God. Great is the mystery, Paul wrote, of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. God gave himself in the person of Jesus Christ for you and for me. It wasn't that he had a son in heaven, you know, and billions of spirit children and that were born between God the Father and God the Mother, like the Mormons will tell you. But Jesus is eternal. He is the creator, and God became a man. Lucifer was created by Jesus, not the brother of Lucifer. Lucifer was an angel that rebelled and fell and became Satan. So Paul's saying, I am concerned that there are those who will come along, they will preach another Jesus, they're seducing you, they are taking you away from the simplicity that is in Christ, and I'm concerned that you may well put up with it. You see, the problem was not just the false apostles coming to the Corinthians and preaching another Jesus, but part of the problem was is that the church in Corinth was putting up with them, receiving them, just as what much of the church today is doing, receiving and putting up with those who deceive and seduce and present another Jesus. These guys had eloquent speech. They had interesting things to say. They presented themselves in, in a way that attracted people, and, and that can happen today, and you and I need to be careful. Paul, when he was writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, for the time will come. He didn't say it might come. He said, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, uh, because they have itchy ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. 
you and I is more than just the outward appearance or eloquence of speech or how smart somebody might be or whatever. It is what they are saying. Does it line up with what the Word of God has to say? And we are to, to filter it through the Word of God and not be deceived and seduced and to receive another Jesus that is being presented than what is given to us, the truth of God's word. And so verse 5, I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostle. Now, commentators will debate who exactly Paul is referring to when he says most eminent apostles. Some say that he's referring to the apostles such as Peter and John. I don't think that Paul is at all. Because Paul and Peter and John, uh, those guys, they saw themselves as bondservants of Jesus Christ. They never would puff themselves up. But I think that Paul clearly is speaking sarcastically of the false apostles that claim to be superior to Paul. The original language suggests that. The phrase most eminent apostle would be like saying extra super apostles. And of course, we have those today that claim to be super apostles and super prophets. We can't get into it all this morning. Uh, I have known that, uh, I've talked to pastors that, uh, particularly back in the 90s, there was kind of this movement of, of super apostles and prophets that were coming into churches and then literally taking over the churches. And, and I've talked to pastors that, that some had large churches that they let these guys come in and they're coming in and they're giving all these revelations to people and telling people you're going to be a successful you know, Christian music artist and you're going to have this ministry and, and you're going to be this great Bible teacher and then, then it didn't happen. God had not called them to do that and people became disillusioned and, and upset and what's wrong with me? And so it was created huge problems. Because these guys claim to be super prophets and super apostles. In verse 6, even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. In the Greek culture, of course, physical appearance and oratory you know, skill was extremely important in gaining respect and prestige. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul was in Athens, right before he came to Corinth, he spoke to those philosophers there on Mars Hill. Those philosophers would spend all day, all their time up there, thinking up new thoughts, desiring you know, new, to hear new things. It wasn't just hearing and thinking up new ideas and thoughts and philosophical questions, but how you said it was just as important. Your oratorical skill and finesse. The way that you said things, was it eloquent, was it polished, was it impressive? And that's what Paul is dealing with here. So personally, I have a hunch that Paul perhaps maybe had a bit of a speech problem. Maybe even he stuttered a little bit. And they made fun of Paul in his speech, and he says, I'm untrained in speech. I'm not going to impress you with my finesse and sophistication. I'm not very entertaining. He says, I do have knowledge, and Paul did, because he sat under the teachings of Gamaliel. Gamaliel, who was called the beauty of the law, considered still in the history of Judaism one of the greatest teachers that ever existed concerning the law. Paul was personally tutored by him, historians tell us. So Paul had knowledge, but it was more than just knowledge of the scripture that Paul had, but he knew Jesus. He was close to God. He knew Jesus personally. He wasn't concerned about meeting people's standard for being a polished or entertaining speaker. He was concerned about faithfully preaching the gospel. There's a story that's told about a dinner party where the guests were asked to stand up after the meal and recite something for the group. There was a famous Shakespearean actor that was well known and 
He stood up and recited the 23rd Psalm with great dramatic flair and emotion, and he sat down, and the people applauded him. Oh, that was great, they all said. Such skill, such feeling. And, and the host said, well, our pastor is here. Would you please recite the 23rd Psalm to us? And of course, he wasn't as eloquent, but he recited it, and he did it with a tear in his eye. And when he finished, he sat down, and the dinner guests all sat in respectful silence, and they were touched deeply. And that famous Shakespearean actor stands and he says, I know the psalm, but he knows the shepherd. You see, it's more than having head knowledge. And it is a lot more than speaking to where you're entertaining or impressive or very polished. But do you know the Lord personally, intimately? And when we listen to someone speak, when I listen to somebody speak, it's got to be more than the oratory skills or how many letters they have after their names. But are they walking closely with Jesus? I want to know, have they been on their faces before God before they went up to teach the scriptures rather than focusing on how funny they can be or how entertaining or how impressive they can be? And Paul knew God, and he preached not with wisdom of men, but in the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit, and many were impacted for Jesus Christ. May we not just know the psalm, but may we know the shepherd intimately. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied, and in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. When Paul came to Corinth, he supported himself by making tents. And again, in the Greek culture, if a public speaker did not take money for his speaking, he was often regarded as a poor speaker. He had nothing important to say. And they were amateur, and, and the Corinthian Christians were, you know, despising Paul because they were worldly in their thinking. They thought it's almost like sinning because he preached the gospel free of charge. He didn't ask for money. He was being supported by other churches, and mainly the church at Philippi there in Macedonia. And we know that chapter 4 of the book of Philippians, Paul thanks the Philippian believers for their gift to him. Now, in the phrase in verse 8, I robbed other churches, he didn't hold up a church. He didn't break into the church and, and steal money. But not being supported by the Corinthians, but he, in those churches of Macedonia, in their own poverty, they would support Paul. Paul was there in Corinth for a year and a half without any support from them. He had callous hands from working to meet his needs. In 1 Corinthians, Paul makes a case about how he gave up his right to be supported financially, materially. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. The most important thing that Paul wanted to do is to follow God's calling and to bring people to Jesus. It is very rare today to find in the ministry that one who will go into full-time ministry or desire to, to pastor a church unless there's a paycheck that is waiting for them. And I know that you can't eat for free, 
But one of the things that has really impressed me and blessed me about the Calvary Chapel movement is that most of the churches in the Calvary Chapels have been started uh, by a man hearing the call of God in their lives. He goes to that city, he starts a Bible study, usually in his home, and he gets a job to support his family. And he continues to do that till the church can support him. And that's what Paul did in Corinth. He, he supported himself. He didn't want to stumble them, even though the church could support him. And I've known many pastors over the years. I was with some this last week. They have been ministering for years to their flock, and they work full time. They make tents, but they also minister as well. And they have the mindset and the heart of, I'm going to follow God's call. God wants me here. I'm going to continue to minister and make sure that these 20, 30 people are being loved and fed the Word of God. And that just blesses me. And again, that's where we're defining the ministry today. One of the things that I never, never want to do is be a burden to this fellowship. I've told Pastor Jim, if I ever become a burden to this ministry, just throw me out of the window. That's what you're to do. But we're blessed that we can be here and we can be supported by you and the staff that is here. But our desire more than anything is just to follow the call of God to make sure you're the best loved and best fed sheep in Greeley. And as the truth of verse 10 tells us, Christ is in me. No one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows. But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity for those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. So essentially, Paul was saying, just see how committed and dedicated these so-called super apostles are when the money's not there. Paul says that we will continue to minister to you even though the money is not coming to me. You're not supporting me, you Corinthians, but I'm going to continue because God has called me here to preach the gospel. When you feel the touch of God on your life, whatever that might mean for you and for me, just be faithful to it and know that somehow God will provide for you. And verse 13, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. So Paul gets more direct here. He says these guys are more concerned about parents and, and, and getting their pay, but also uh, that they're corrupt, that they don't bring the truth of the gospel. They're false apostles. They're deceitful workers. They're not true apostles. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if he ministers also, if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their work. And so we're going to stop there and we'll pick it up here next week because this is a very important section of scripture that we need to understand. That Satan will present himself as an angel of light. So we need to be wise in the days in which we're living. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you that, Lord, we can come and as Paul is... is given these weighty words to um, the Christians here at Corinth that, that we can learn. And Lord, I pray that we would understand this, that you have a race for us to run. And we're to do it faithfully and looking to you. But for us to also know that you come to Christ if you want to run that race. There is a start. And it comes by surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. Just as we've discussed, Jesus, he is the way, not a way. He is the life. 
He is the truth. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. That's what Jesus declared. And He proved it by going to the cross, dying for our sins, and then rising from the grave three days later. No one else died for your sins. No one else rose from the grave. He's conquered sin and death. He is the King of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. And He loves you. And if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, we want to give you an opportunity this morning to do that. We want to give you an opportunity to acknowledge that because today is the day of salvation. He is the way to heaven. And our sins have separated us from God. But Jesus is the mediator between God and man because he died on the cross for you. And he loves you. And he wants to save you today. Don't pass up this moment. For you to receive Jesus Christ into your heart and forgiveness of sin and the hope of heaven. And it comes by believing in who he is, the Son of God, and what he did for you, dying on Calvary's cross for your sins personally. And that he rose from the grave three days later. Do you believe that? Ask him into your heart if you've never done that. He is your salvation. He's the only salvation that is possible for you. And right where you're sitting, and if you're out there in a coffee shop as well, whoever's listening to this message, that you would open your heart to Jesus right now. That you can pray, Jesus, come into my heart. Be my personal Lord and Savior. I believe that you're the Son of God who died for my sins. Forgive me, because I confess that I am a sinner. And I know that the wages of sin is death. But you've come to give life. For you are the way, the truth, and the life. So I receive you into my heart. I believe that you rose from the grave. And thank you for hearing my prayer. I surrender to you. I repent. And I give myself to you fully. I surrender to you. Help me to live for you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer this morning, why don't you just raise your hand, even if you're out in a coffee.